your food is traveling on average 1,500 miles from where it's grown or manufactured, and I say manufactured on purpose, to your plate. That is an environmental problem. Hey, this is Greg Peterson, and you are entering a world gone good. Well, hello, my name's Steve, and this is World Gone Good, the podcast where we look for the light and sometimes shine the light into the darkness to discover there's still a whole lot of good going on out there. Here is my only request of you in this very moment. Sit back and enjoy the show. That's it. Okay, that's a lie. I have another request. If you enjoy the show, share us with your friends on your social media account. Subscribe to us wherever you are listening now and rate and review us. Oh my God, these are so many requests. You just want to enjoy the show like I offered. Sheesh. Okay, we appreciate you and we appreciate you listening. And if you want to help us spread some good on top of that, we appreciate it even more. And now, enjoy the show. Okay, when I was just a wee bit of a world gone gooder, maybe nine or 10 years old, I read an article in Highlights Magazine, or maybe it was Boy's Life, or, you know, if it's me, it was probably Dynamite Magazine, where they showed step-by-step how to grow your own corn stalk from a single kernel of unpopped popcorn. Okay, here we go. This is from memory. You take a mason jar, you cram a piece of paper towel down to the very bottom, and then in the jar. Okay, so you put the piece of paper towel crammed in the bottom, and then you add just enough, wait for it, it's the word everyone hates, just enough water, that's not the word you hate, here comes the word you hate, just enough water to make it, oh, you're going to cringe, moist. Why does everyone hate that word all of a sudden? All right, whatever. Then you take your single kernel of unpopped popcorn, You can do a few kernels if you like, and you just drop it in so it lands on the moist, calm down, it's a word, moist paper towel. Then you put your mason jar with your kernel or kernels of unpopped popcorn on the moist, oh my God, do you need a minute? Breathe, jeez, moist paper towel, and put the jar in a windowsill where it will get direct sunlight a few hours a day. You want to put a few drops of water back in the jar daily to keep the paper towel moist. Put your phone down. Do not call 911. This is not an actual emergency. It's just a word. Moist. Moist. Within a few days, you will see your unpopped kernel of popcorn. It's going to get this like little green dot on the side of it. And then like magic, that tiny green dot becomes the very beginnings of your corn stalk. Once your stalk is about two inches, three inches high, you can transfer it to a small pot filled with soil and you can watch it grow in your windowsill. Mine at like nine or 10 got about, I want to say like a foot or so high. And my dad suggested that we plant it in our little tiny garden on the side of our house in Randolph, New Jersey. So by the end of the summer, that Corn stalk that I made from a kernel of corn, it was taller than my dad. We tried to pollinate it. I'm remembering ourselves. We tried with like a small paintbrush, but alas, we are not bees. Um, we may not have had the right type of paintbrush or bee 
skills. We never actually got real corn to grow. Still, it was and is a super fun project. And if you are listening and you have a child or children, I highly recommend making it a project for them to try. I also highly recommend that you get over the word moist. I share this story with you as an example of the full extent of my actual farming abilities, at least food-related farming abilities. My guest today is way more accomplished, and I want so badly to say right now, equally moist, but I know how sensitive you are, so I'm not saying it. Greg Peterson, or as he's better known, Farmer Greg, from the Urban Farm and Urban Farm Podcast, is with me. Farmer Greg has a farm right in his front yard in the city And not just any city, a hot city, temperature-wise hot. We're talking Phoenix, Arizona. If you're looking for someone to inspire you to make a difference in the world and feed yourself and your family right from your own front or back yard, lawn or porch or deck or fire escape or even your windowsill, Farmer Greg is ready to share his good seeds of knowledge. Well, you are Greg Peterson, but you are also, I believe, a self-appointed Farmer Greg. That would be the case. Were you given that name or did you choose that name? How does someone be, be uh, knighted a farmer? <laughs> well, I just claimed it for myself. How about that? That's pretty cool. When did you start farming? Oh, my gosh. 45 years ago? Well, all right. I started gardening when I was 15. That was 45 years ago. And I called, started calling myself a farmer in the early aughts, you know, like 2002, 2003. And I did it to engage people in conversation. Because when I introduced myself as Farmer Greg, people are like, whoa, hold on, you're a farmer? And it starts the conversation. So... It's a conversation starter for me, and I also named my farm. So, Now, you are not in what most people would think of as a farming location. You're not in the Midwest. You're not on the Ponderosa. You are in Phoenix, Arizona. I am. Right. And so, yeah, where specifically, if you can, where is the urban farm that you run in Phoenix, Arizona? The urban farm is my house. I've been here for 32 years. That is well over half of my life, which is a little bit mind-blowing to me. I am literally right in the middle of Phoenix. If you stood on my roof and look, and you could see 50 miles in each direction, you'd see city. And that's the whole point. Our whole point is to get people engaged with growing food where they actually eat it. Do you know a term called food miles? Tell us about it. Food miles is the amount of miles that your food travels from where it is grown or manufactured to your plate. And the average amount of food miles in the U.S. is about 1,500. Wow. So that means your food is traveling on average 1,500 miles from where it's grown or manufactured. And I say manufactured on purpose to your plate. That is an environmental problem. And that is a big piece of the reason why we've decided to launch this urban farming conversation. So what is an urban farm? An urban farm is really any place in the city that is consciously growing food for sharing with other people. 
So when I invite people to claim their urban farmerhood, basically it's this simple. You grow food, you share it. And if you want to really go out there, name your farm and share that name with people. Because when you do that, like uh, Jack's Beanstalk, that's a local farm name here in Phoenix, or Two Fat Cats Apartment Garden, or Two Peace in a Pod, these are all farm names. And they kind of elicit a giggle when I share them with people. It's like it brings a lightness to the space. So what we're doing is we're engaging people in the conversation about how to get good local healthy food in a fun way. Because when you have a party, where do people end up? In the kitchen. That's right. Hanging around the food. So let's just take it a little farther out to the garden. So that's why that's why we talk about being an urban farmer and growing your own food. Okay, step back for a second here. So when you had your own farm, there had to be a point where there was a spark of, I'm going to the next level. From gardening, planting, to what you're talking about. When was that for you? There were several of them. And they were magnificently, I'll use that word, life-changing. And I planted my first garden when I was 15. I was about an eighth grader at the time. And at the same time, I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. That was 1974. So I had a sense ever since my preteens that there was something wrong with the way we were living on the planet and growing our food. In 1981, I was on the board of the Arizona Aquaculture Association, that's fish farms, and we would travel around to fish farms around the state and see what they were doing with their fish. And they would clean, in a lot of cases, they would clean the fish and throw away the leftovers. And that didn't make sense to me because that leftover in nature is fertilizer. But on those farms, it was a waste product. So in 1981, I designed a what we would now call a regenerative farm, where everything on the farm got used. Fast forward to 1991, I'm in a course at Landmark Education, and they want me to claim a vision for my life. Now, in 1991, I'm 30 years old, and I've already been working in the food space a lot. And what I came up with 30 years ago and I still live with this every day. I am the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Is that a big burden to have, or is that something you hope more people will take on themselves? I hope it's an inspirational piece. For me, people can look at it as a burden, but for me, it's what gets me up in the morning. In fact, when you ask that question, I just got chills all the way down to my toes. It's like, this is why I'm here. And this is what I can do to contribute. Now, here's what I'm clear about. I don't think that I will ever in my lifetime be able to achieve that, which is okay. But what I do every day is I inspire people to head toward that. I am a person of the journey, not the destination. If I did get to a place in my lifetime where I actually transformed our global food system, I'd pick something else. Because for me, it's about the journey, not the, not the destination. 
Well, that's the thing is everyone has uh, this destination fantasy that they're going to get there and something big and bold and wonderful magic is going to happen at that instant you hit it. But it's right. really, it's the really the road getting there that that's where that's all the right. magic stuff happens. Of course. Yeah, I, I have magic happen literally every single day. In fact, when we do team meetings, there's four of us on our team. When we do team meetings at the end of each meeting, everybody gets to shout out an epic or two. What happened for you today, either personally or in the business or wherever? What is your epic? What happened that got you excited? And I'll tell you what, some really awesome stuff comes out of that. So tell us this, a couple questions I have. First of all, what is sustainable farming and what is organic farming? First of all, let's discover the word sustainable. I am not a huge fan of it. The sustainability movement is something that's been good, but I think it needs to go away. Where I want to go is something called regenerative farming. And what that looks like is my front yard. There is at any given moment in my front yard, 10, 15, or 20 different things that I can go out and harvest and eat. And right now we have tomatoes, celery, kale, the end of the broccoli, nasturtiums, which are an edible flower, uh, cilantro, basil, oregano, garlic, onions. There's 10 things growing in my front yard right now that I could go harvest and eat. And we do. We eat out of our yard every day here at the Urban Farm. And what I have done, so this is a regenerative edible landscape in my front yard. And what that means is that I don't, oh, there's carrots in my front yard as well. I don't plant carrots out every year. Most of what I shared with you is growing in in my front yard right now. I don't plant them every year. I let them go to seed. I let those seeds sprout. And just like in a forest, there's food. Right. You know, there used to to be a time in the planet when food used to be free. Ponder that. Right. And what I was going to ask you is, you know, there's a lot to moving, especially with the soil and the planet and the earth, of moving the plant systems around so does that play into what you do? Do you do you decide what is where or you let them move on their own? I just let them move on their own. So right now I've got some beautiful carrots that are going to seed. And carrot, carrot umbels or carrot flowers are magnificent flowers. And each one will make a thousand seeds. So what I'll, I'll harvest some of those and save them for later, maybe. But often what I do is I just grab them once they dry up and I crinkle them in my hand and I just toss them. I spread them in my gardens so that nature happens naturally. So going back to your question, sustainable farming for me is regenerative farming. And that's one of the ways that I make it happen in my front yard is I just let nature be in my front yard. Now, in the middle, there's a lawn, so I have to manage the lawn. However, Right now in the lawn, we have lettuce, we have cilantro, there's carrots and celery that are coming up in the lawn. They just found their way there. They just found their way there. That's right. Exactly. And then you asked about organic farming. Yes. And that's a different, a little bit different thing than regenerative farming. Organic farming is only using things, fertilizers, 
Pest controls, if you need them, although I rarely use pest controls now after 32 years, uh, only using organic methods to manage out the challenges that we have. That's the organic piece. I've been organic here for 32 years. I may have said that already at the urban farm. And it's, I just don't use chemicals, no chemicals at all. Well, bugs have a purpose too. I just did a whole show about bees and bugs have a whole part of worms. Worms have a part of this. Oh yeah. And they all have their, their part in all this. Now, let me ask you something that I'm curious about, which is you're in Phoenix. A farm requires water. Mm -hmm. That's already a difficulty for a lot of farmers. How are you handling that in Phoenix, Arizona, when there are times of the year you guys are 100, 115? Yeah. (laughs) It's dry. (laughs) It's hot and dry, yes. Well, so there is something here in Phoenix. It's a water right that comes with the land. It is called flood irrigation. And it's here because... The property that my house is built on was built on a citrus orchard in the 1940s. So prior to that, it had water rights to to water citrus. So I actually have a water right called flood irrigation, and I get 20 times a year, I get six inches of water in my yard. Oh, interesting. And how does that arrive? There's a, a series of canals and pipes that bring it to my property. It is something that is crazy to have in the desert. I am clear about that. And there are well over 33,000 acres of flood irrigated properties in Phoenix or in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And what I am trying to do here at the urban farm is show people that you can grow more than just grass in flood irrigation. And you st- you store it when you get it, Greg? It just comes in. It floods my yard. I get six inches. It seeps in. It really, it waters my fruit trees. The cool thing is, is the technologies that we've developed. Well, all right. So we haven't necessarily developed them. We honed them inside of the urban farm. These technologies are water saving technologies that help people like two piece in a pod. That's Janice's farm. She has this beautiful, lush backyard, and she's put things in place, put systems in place. She doesn't have flood irrigation, and she's put systems in place in her yard that has her yard thrive for $50 a month in water. Amazing. Which is about what my water bill is here at the Urban Farm, about $50 a month. And some of those systems are thick, 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 thick. Did I say thick, woody mulch? You know, yes. Literally, when I do garden consults with people, one of the things that I point them to do is add a foot, twelve, at least 12 inches of woody mulch in your yard. And that woody mulch at the interface between the dirt and the woody mulch, it becomes very, very quickly becomes healthy soil. But it also acts like this great big sponge and it holds on to the water. And Janice has gotten an inch of rain in an hour at her place in the past couple of years, and her backyard soaks that water up like a sponge. And if you have a foot of woody mulch in your yard and you get an inch of rain, 
and it percolates all the way down into it. In six or eight weeks, even with this heat, it's still going to be damp down there because of the insulation factor. And then we have different kinds of uh, high-efficiency watering systems that we talk with people about. So there's lots that can be done to make sure that you're being water-wise. And quite honestly, everybody in earshot, anybody that's listening out there, no matter where you are, you need to start being water-wise because we... We're in the west of the Rockies, we're in a mega drought right now. And I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. So we need to be paying big attention to the water that we use. Now, the urban farm is open to the public? The urban farm is my home. It's 80 feet wide, 160 feet deep, and I've designed it to be able to do tours here. And usually what I do sans a once in a century pandemic, uh, we usually do about three tours a year where I open the yard up for people to come and see what's happening at the urban farm. And you hope to inspire them when they come in, you hope to educate them, you hope that they leave wanting to bring you to their property to help this. What, what's the goal? So I'm an educator. I mostly like to inspire and educate people to figure out how to do this themselves. I don't, you know, I have enough to do here at my urban farm to, you know, keep it up. And so I don't actually do this for other people. I do garden consults for people on the phone, but what I'm really after is to inspire people to learn about this and figure it out themselves because we have a we have a food crisis in this world that nobody's paying attention to. And it starts with, we have a three-day supply of food in any urban area. How's that for a piece of data? So on that note, so you you consider yourself an educator. A lot of my listeners out there, I'm sure, live in apartments, yep. don't have the space. I put that, in, I'm, I just did giant air quotes. She didn't see that. Um, what do you say to somebody who wants to create their own food and they live in an apartment or they don't have the, they don't have the land space. So let's go back to, uh, what is an urban farm real quickly? An urban farm is any place in the city that grows food. You can be growing it hydroponically, aeroponically in aquaponics in a shipping container. There are shipping container farms here in town. There's in-the-ground gardens. There's a pot on your windowsill. The most expensive thing to buy in the grocery store and the easiest thing to grow are? Fruits and vegetables. Fruits and vegetables, but even more so than that, herbs. Oh, yeah, herbs, sure. Right? You know, you go and you spend for three ounces of basil, five bucks. Basil is one of the simplest things to grow. You can grow that in a windowsill. If you have a sunny windowsill, get yourself a little pot, add some nice planting mix into it, add a few basil seeds, and within about six weeks, you're going to be harvesting basil for your, you know, for your mozzarella salads. There's another thing, and, and I, I have a third of an acre. I grow in the yard. I also have something called a tower garden. A tower garden is something put out by Juice Plus. It is an aquaponic growing system. and we use our aquaponic growing system 
to grow greens all year round. We have a salad on our tower garden virtually 365 days a year. That is grown inside. I have a little garden room here at the house. It's grown inside, and I actually purchased a light kit for it. So I'm doing indoor hydroponics. Uh, I'm growing food in my front and backyard. I have about 60 fruit trees on the property, plus we have chickens, so we get eggs every day from our hens. So there's so many different things that you can do, all the way from a pot on the windowsill to converting your entire yard to edible landscape like I've done here. Okay, now comes the most important question of the day. What is your favorite plant to grow? Oh, fruit trees. You plant them once and you nurture them a little bit every year. Give them a little bit of food, fertilizer, that kind of stuff. And they will make fruit for you for decades. I have a citrus tree in my backyard. I actually have two citrus trees in my backyard that were planted in the 1920s. That's a hundred years ago, and I still get fruit off of them. So for, for your biggest bang for your buck, plant a fruit tree. I get this question too. Which fruit tree should I plant? Well, make it one that you love. We're going to pivot for a minute here because you're not just a farmer. You're a farmer podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> you started podcasting in what year? Uh, the first time I had a freshly green podcast that was out in 2006 and 2007. I have 80 episodes of that somewhere. And then uh, returned back in 2015. We launched our podcast, the Urban Farm Podcast, in November of 2015. And how many days a week are you podcasting? How many episodes a week? Right now we do two podcasts a week. On Tuesday, we do a, a, a really, it's a discovery podcast. My podcasts are catching up with people for them to share their stories. And my desire in most cases is that they share their story to inspire somebody out of, of, out of their chair that they don't like, wherever they're working, and into doing something they love. And then the uh, our Friday podcast, we call them Farmer Fridays. It's about 10 minutes worth of education. You know, we're just giving people how to, what makes healthy soil? Or, um, you know, what is, what is an urban farm? And I usually bring in uh, guests from really all over the world. So, Greg, do you think that farming can save the world? Honestly, I think we're past being able to save the world. And when people say save the world, it's really saving our own human behinds. Uh, because in 10,000 years, once people are gone, the planet will be just fine. The planet will recover. We, as a human species, need to figure out pretty dang quickly in the next two to five years what to do to save the current structure from collapse. And that's my concern on a day-to-day -day basis is that we're looking at a, basically it's, it's a simple, simple concept. It's called carrying capacity. Carrying capacity is the essentially, and I'm boiling this down greatly, the amount of biological waste in a system that the system can manage out. 
So let's say you have a fish pond and the fish pond holds 10 fish, 100 snails, and 1,000 algae. And that is the balance for that fish pond. And if you add 20 fish, it throws the balance completely off. And in order for it to get back in balance, 10 of those fish are probably going to die. And what we've done here on the planet is significantly overshot the carrying capacity of the planet. And there are things that can be done. There are absolutely things that can be done. And we need to get serious about doing them. And one of them is planting trees planting trillions and trillions of trees on the planet. And that would have a, from my research, that would have a magnitudinal impact on how we are able to live on the planet. We end these shows with three questions. Don't worry, you know the answers. The easiest one is first is where do people find you? Where do people find the urban farm? Plug away urbanfarmpodcast.com and I always have a free gift for people and uh, we've talked a little bit about water so if you want to know more about water and watering your garden if you go to urbanfarmwater.com you'll be able to find information there on watering your garden and where do people find you on social media Uh, Facebook I think Instagram Uh, Facebook is the Urban Farm. Uh, Instagram is Urban Farm Phoenix, I believe. I'm not much. I'm 60 years old. I'm not much of a (laughs) that kind of a person. Not that that kind of a person's bad. It's just not me. Oh, please! You got to podcast. You'll get there. So um, these last two questions can can relate back to anything we've already spoken about or anything you want to say. Question number one: Who inspires you? Oh my gosh. Uh, people that are doing epic things in the world. I say things happen because people say so. So go out and say so. Make things happen. And then Daniel Quinn, he is no longer with us. He was an author, wrote a book called Ishmael. I am significantly inspired by Daniel Quinn and his writings. And the final question, tell me something good. Oh my gosh, plant a fruit tree, uh, find something epic to do every day, have fun, enjoy your journey every moment, be present, be present. Like right now, I am so present. I'm not thinking about what's for dinner or, you know, any of that stuff. Be present right this moment and have fun, man. If you're not having fun, I was at, I was recently at a coffee shop and this is me all the time. How I've been with you, I'm just light and happy and fun. And there's this woman in front of me. It was 7.30 in the morning. And she kind of growled at me and said, what are you so happy about? And I said, I have a choice every morning when I get up to be happy or not. And you know what she said to me? She said, well, stop it. (laughs) Right? I was like, wow, all right. Yeah, but this is me. Be happy. Enjoy the ride because no matter where you're heading, it's probably not going to be as great as you've made it up in your head. So enjoy right now and right now and right now and be happy. 
Thank you, Greg, for sharing your good. Check out the Urban Farm Podcast for more farm talk wherever you pod best. Next time on World Gone Good. Understanding their bodies and understanding how everything works and that they, you know, what their rights are and how to communicate. I'm like, I just, I just think that's so important. My good friend Mary Weiss returns. You heard her last over the holidays. She came here to tell a very special family Christmas story. Mary is a lifelong good volunteer and currently she's spending her voluntary time teaching sex education. We are going to talk about the good of understanding our anatomy, self-worth, and of course, the Catholic guilt. Because how can we not, when we are talking about our anatomy and self-worth, we've got to talk about Catholic guilt. (laughs) It's going to be a good one. Until then, be good.